0: Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, Episode 28, The Dictator. The Romans were concerned by their defeat at the Trebia. It was not very often that Rome had an army destroyed, but Rome had huge reserves of manpower. They kept cool, raised new legions, and waited. The people would have been quite happy, having elected Gaius Flaminius to office. He was an expert on the north, after all, and the people loved him. Surely he would be able to bring Hannibal to heel. The senators were more pessimistic. They were not fond of Flaminius, and were unhappy that he was leading their armies. Flaminius had rushed off, leaving the other consul Gnaeus Servilius, behind to fulfil religious functions. Servilius then marched north to Ariminum. There was nothing left for the Romans to do but wait. Rumours began to arrive. Rumours that there had been a disaster in the north, that the consul and his army had been killed. The people were distraught. People flooded into the streets, trying to get any information about their loved ones. People stood at the gates of Rome, begging any arrivals to the city for news. Wives screamed with joy or despair, as news made it to them, whether their husbands had survived the carnage. Mothers stood, waiting to hear what had become of their sons. Livy relates a story of a mother who had been mistakenly told her son was dead when the boy arrived home his mother died from excessive joy while the majority awaited for the news of their families the senators met they discussed what they could possibly do next from first light to dusk they debated their options who would lead them how strong an army could they raise to face off Hannibal? It was at this moment more bad news reached the walls of Rome. The propraetor, Gaius Centenius, had been sent by Sevilius to assist Flaminius with 4,000 mounted troops. After hearing of Flaminius's annihilation at Lake Trasimene, they headed to Umbria, where Hannibal cut them off the force was completely destroyed. Some at Rome saw it as a minor loss, compared to Trasimene, but for others, it just added to the misery. The Senate saw only one possible action available to them. They would appoint a dictator. As you'll remember from episode 3, the dictator was a perfectly constitutional office in the Roman Republic, not to be confused with the modern dictatorship. In an emergency, action needed to be taken by a single person, rather than through the many cogs of a republic. The dictatorship had been overused in the past, and it was not something the Senate wanted to do, but they felt they had no other option. But there was an issue. The job of nominating a dictator was that of the consul, Sevilius, who was not nearby and couldn't easily be contacted. They got around this through a constitutional innovation. They appointed an acting dictator, Quintus Fabius Maximus. His master of the halls was Marcus Minucius Rufus. What the Senate tasks them with is particularly interesting. I quote from Livy, book 22, chapter 8. The two men were entrusted by the Senate with the task of strengthening the defences on the city walls, posting garrisons wherever they should see fit, and destroying the bridges. The defence of Italy had failed. The war, henceforth, would be at home to save the city. Yes, very interesting indeed. Before we get Fabius' dictatorship underway, it will be worth recapping what else was going on in Italy. After defeating Centenius, Hannibal advanced through Umbia to Spoletium and failed to take the town. This made him realise, if he hadn't already, that Rome would be incredibly hard to take if he failed to take such a small settlement with heavy losses. He thus advanced to Picenum, where there were great resources for him to use, and it would be an ideal location to rest his troops from the hardness of the winter and the march through the Arno. After a good rest, he moved south, making his way to the Apulian border. Servilius, who was up in Ariminum, continued to skirmish with Gauls and ...captured a town which Livy doesn't deem important enough to note the name of. As soon as he heard what had happened to Flaminius, his thoughts were on a similar line to the Senate's. He believed that Rome was in danger, and so he hastened there to protect it. Likewise, we shall return to Rome too. Upon taking the office of the dictatorship, Fabius called a meeting of the Senate to discuss the reasons for flaminius's defeat by hannibal fabius's reasons were quite a bit different from the ones i gave last week rather than focusing on that someone with barely any experience of leading armies had been elected to power and by not doing a basic reconnaissance had led his whole army to their doom fabius informed the senate that flaminius had lost the battle because he neglected traditional ceremonies at Rome, particularly the auspices. The Sibylline books were consulted, and it was realised that the original offering to Mars had been incorrectly performed and needed to be repeated. In addition, games were to be held for Jupiter, a shrine to Venus, Uri and to Mens. Public prayers should be held along with a strewing of couches, which is a banquet offered to the gods, with their images on couches, and a vow should be made to hold a sacred spring, an offering to the gods of the produce of the coming spring, if the war went well. Fabius asked that, as he would be dealing with military matters, that the praetor, Marcus Aemilius, should fulfil these measures. These were all held and Fabius moved on to more practical matters. It is a very interesting look at the Roman psyche that Fabius considers putting this before making practical considerations, and that while Livy may not completely agree, he seems to accept it as a rational thing to do. This prioritising is quite different to what is currently in vogue, and it is quite nice to get a look inside the Romans' heads. It reminds me a lot of the mid-third century, when one of the first acts of the Emperor Decius is emperor-wide sacrifices to get Rome back on the side of the gods. I wonder if Decius was studying his history, and was following in the lead of Fabius in solving the problems of the day. This is just my own pondering, but it is interesting nonetheless. Fabius next opened debate in the Senate on how large a force would they need to face Hannibal. A decree was passed allowing Fabius to take control of Servilius's armies. In addition, the master of horse, Minucius, was ordered to raise two additional legions, who would meet him at Tiber, the modern Tivoli, around twenty miles to the east of Rome. He then instructed the inhabitants of unfortified towns to get to safety, while those who held land which was likely Hannibal would cross were to use scorched earth tactics. Getting resources would be Hannibal's biggest problem in fighting in enemy territory. The best thing the Romans could do to make things worse would be to prevent Hannibal from living off the land. Fabius set out to meet with Sevilius, on the Flaminian Way. That road to the Po Valley, named, of course, after our dearly departed Flaminius. Quite cheekily, Fabius sent an officer to Sevilius, reminding him that he couldn't have his lictors when he met the dictator. Shortly after uniting, a report came from Rome that Carthaginian merchant vessels had captured the harbour of Cossa, Servilius was ordered to go to Ostia, take control of all available ships in the vicinity, and capture the ships. A large force in Rome was raised, even including freedmen. Fabius now took over Savilius' army from his second-in-command, Fulvius Flaccus, and marched to Tibur to take the recruits that Manucius had collected, and then he crossed the country very carefully collecting reconnaissance. Regardless of what he had said to the Senate, clearly Fabius had learned the lessons of Flaminius. As soon as Hannibal and Fabius grew close, near Apri, Hannibal offered Fabius battle. He was disappointed to see no response at all from Fabius. There was no hustle and bustle from the Roman camp. As the Carthaginians returned to their camp, they taunted the Romans. They had finally cowed this proud nation of supposed warriors. Hanbal saw things quite differently. He understood what this meant and was deeply troubled. In the future, he would have to deal with a commander quite different to Sempronius and Flaminius. It appeared the Romans had learned from their lessons, and chosen a general of his own level of quality. Fabius had earned the respect of Hannibal, but Hannibal was not going to give up after one instance of the Romans refusing battle. He would provoke Fabius. He was constantly moving around, ravaging the land, while the Romans watched. His army would disappear and then, surprise Fabius on the bend of a road. Fabius kept to the high ground, staying near the enemy but avoiding conflicts. He tried to keep his men within their defences as much as possible. Foraging parties were always kept small and within a small area. He did not risk a big engagement, but fought small skirmishes on favourable ground. Over time, his troops gained their confidence back. They stopped doubting their skill. It infuriated Hannibal, but it also infuriated Minucius, the master of horse. Livy states in Book 22, Chapter 12, that Minucius was prevented from hurling the country into ruin only by the fact of his inferior rank. Minucius began to insult Fabius, first in private and then in the open. He believed that Fabius was just a coward and began to voice that he should lead instead. This is not the first time that a disgruntled deputy has done this and it most certainly is not the last. Frustrated at not getting anywhere with Fabius, Hannibal decided to move on, encouraged by the words of his prisoners. He decided to advance to Campania, to try and take Capua, but this must wait for next time. I know I have just done this last week, and I am really sorry, but I'm going to need to take next week off. While I would be quite happy to spend my time podcasting, unfortunately, the realities of going to university mean that I have exams which require me to revise, so please wish me luck and I'll see you in two weeks when my exams will be over for this semester and I can get back to what is really important in life talking about Hannibal to you guys each week. If you like hearing me talk to you guys about Hannibal each week, then why not support the show? How can you do this? Like the Facebook page Facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com. Forward slash the history of pod. Subscribe to us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash the history of podcast. Leave an iTunes review. Written is preferred. Send me an email, the history of podcast at gmail.com. Or you can visit the website, the history of podcast.blogspot.com, and buy something through the Amazon links. This week, I'm going to recommend the excellent The Roman Empire, by Colin Wells. It is one of the best works I've seen covering the Principate, and is a great addition to any library. I am in fact going to quote a section, which I find particularly insightful. It is of course a reason for Rome being overrated. Before I read the quote, let me remind you of what my thoughts were in the 25th episode. Rome is an amazing state. It achieved many feats which would not be seen again until the 1800s. There is a lot to admire. It is, though, important not to forget the darker side of Rome, something that is often done. So, without ado, I shall quote from pages 253 to 254 of the 1992 second edition. The Roman Order was based partly on consent, partly on custom, partly on institutionalised terror. There was a ruthless logic about it. When Sejanus fell, his children were to die as well, partly to add to the terror of his fall, partly to stop them growing up to avenge him. One was a little girl. Custom forbade the execution of a virgin, so the executioner raped her before he strangled her. The Christian accounts of martyrdom reveal a casual and familiar acquaintance with torture and routine brutality, which reminds one of Nazi concentration camps. The implements of torture are mentioned, the claws, the iron seat, with no explanation. Christian readers needed none. At Perpetua's trial, her aged father tries the magistrate's patience by going on too long pleading with his daughter. He is knocked down and beaten with a rod. Gibbon writes of the emperors from Trajan to Marcus Aurelius that their characters and authority commanded involuntary respect. We saw them in chapter 10 as men honest in their generation using their position for the common good, as they saw it, pleased with considering themselves as the accountable ministers of the law. To use once more a Gibbonian phrase, so they were. They were also stern upholders of the established order. Their reward was and is to be praised by those who consider that without order there is no security, no scope for culture, and learning no chances for people to lead their own lives, and bring up their children in peace and security. That without order, we risk returning to the state which Hobbes describes, wherein every man is at war with every man, and the life of man solidarity, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The price paid, however, for the Antonine order, however, by the outcast the dispossessed, or simply those, like the Christians, who subscribed to a different set of values, was the institutionalised terror on a scale unsurpassed until modern technology made it possible for 20th century dictatorships to apply terror even more widely and more effectively. Thanks for listening.